3: Visit RightRug.com, that's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.
4: Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about things falling apart and even occasionally about... Trying to put them back together. Uh, today, as is too often the case, we're going to be focused more on the falling apart uh, thing because today we are talking about the situation in Ukraine. Um, it is as I, I type, or not type because I'm not writing, but you know, you get how I'm used to thinking. As I say this, uh, Russian troops have just moved in. To two regions in eastern Ukraine that have been occupied by what are generally called Russian-backed separatists uh, since 2014, uh, Vladimir Putin gave a speech that I will be we will be talking about a bit with our guest, um, and announced his intention to recognize those breakaway sections of the st- uh, country as independent republics. Uh, and the area that he has chosen to recognize includes about 70 percent territory that is currently occupied and held by the Ukrainian government. So it's a big mess. Uh, This is, some have said, like a soft version of the invasion uh, that people were expecting. I think it's probably more accurate to say it's a a slow start um, compared to what is potentially possible and very likely coming in the future. To talk more about this and about being an anarchist kind of trapped in between you know NATO and Russia and everything that's flinging around right now uh is Ukrainian journalist Romeo kukratsky Romeo uh welcome to the show
5: thanks a lot thanks for having me been a big fan of yours so it's a honor honor to be here
4: and you are in you're in Kiev right now right yeah correct and and how is everybody keeps asking this all around but how is the mood um as you know to the extent that there's a way of saying that like've I've, I've you know, it, it, have things kind of taken a turn since Putin actually made his first big play?
5: I mean, as much as journalists like to say there is no magic moodometer mud- yeah. to check yeah. <laughs> to instantly pull every resident of the city to find out, yeah, walk around and
4: at. talk to everybody, yeah,
5: <laughs> just like all, all the four million or whatever citizens of the city. Let me just let, let me just ask them, um, but. Like, there definitely has been a turning point. Um, Yeah. Like, one of the big refrains that uh, I've seen, like, personally, and everyone has been saying, right, is that Ukrainians are so calm. Look at these pictures of them, like, shopping in malls and, like, going to school. What
4: else are you supposed to do? Honestly, what else
5: are we (laughs) supposed to do? (laughs) But, I mean, it is true. People have been calm. But since yesterday evening, there definitely has been a shift, um, and even casual conversation, uh in kiev like i was sitting to, to paraphrase a famous columnist's usual framing i was sitting in a cafe <laughs> in kiev and overhearing the waitstaff chat amongst themselves mm-hmm. um and obviously the 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 whole conversation is oh is putin gonna push into kiev and anecdotally or semi-anecdotally i guess um apartment prices in the western cities like in lviv and usher have really spiked up like incredibly. <sighs> Oh, boy. Um, so that, people are... I wouldn't call that... That's some, a
4: depressing like, way to pay attention to that, or reason to pay right? attention to that. <laughs>
5: <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I wouldn't call it a mass panic. Um, there are no, like, bank runs. No, like, all the stores are stocked. No one's, like, hoarding. Um, but at the same time, there is a steady trickle of people going west and kind of making plans at this point.
4: Yeah, and... um so this to kind of give people a little bit more context before we get into some of the more political dimensions of this um right now there has not been a massive escalation um of violence outside of the areas where there has been fighting for several years you know there has been an escalation on the front line that's existed since 2014 Um, But there has not been like, you know, troops pouring across the border in other areas and stuff. And that's obviously probably the number one worry. Um, It it looks like what's about to happen is or at least it's hard to say because Putin has recognized the borders of this breakaway part of Ukraine as significantly larger than the area they actually control and he has moved troops russian active duty troops into that area now russian troops i'm from what i've heard about 3000 have been in the breakaway areas for years now um but yeah, a significant rotating mm-hmm. yeah a significant number have been added now and obviously the fear is that because he has recognized the territory of these these quote-unquote, in his terms, breakaway republics as being much larger than what they control, that Russian troops are going to participate with the separatists um, in attacking and taking those territories from the Ukrainian government. Um, that's one concern. Obviously, the the concern attached to that is that it would be not at all inconceivable for a conflict that started that way to spread to a much wider part of Ukraine. Um this is all coming alongside a speech Putin gave that unfortunately is going to be one of those things people hear about in history books. Utterly um, deranged. Just yeah, out of its of myself, goddamn yeah, it's mind. Utterly deranged. And, and it's one of those things. We will talk some more about how the Western left uh, sometimes. I, I, I don't want to be like – because this is also largely the, the online left, but how the online left talks about Putin sometimes. This was not a, I want to return to the Soviet Union speech. This was, I want to return to Tsarist Russia's borders type speech. Like
5: <laughs> The guy has the Tsarist imperial crest, emblazoned on the gates to his palace yeah so I'm yeah. really not sure what people would have expected
4: yeah and, uh, and unfortunately he's better at his job than any of the last czars were because he's he's achieved a notable amount of success towards that goal already um and yeah he he a number of things that were it's one of those like one of the things he said which is a line that folks like him in Russia have been saying for a while is that uh Ukraine's the existence of Ukraine as an independent polity is a mistake. And as an anarchist, you know, there's this like, well, yeah, I don't, I don't like the Ukrainian state. I don't like any state in particular. But if, you're, if your only disagreement is with the, the statehood of Ukraine and you're fine with the statehood of Russia, you know, then, then perhaps what you actually think is that people in Ukraine should not have any autonomy to disagree with the government in Moscow. Um, and I think that's the case here um there's a there's similarities between how Putin and those like him in Russia treat Ukrainians um with how for example the Turks treat uh Kurds in the southern part of the country there's this this thing you'll hear a lot from Turkey where like there's no Kurds in Turkey they're they're mountain Turks who've lost their uh their language and there's this denial from Putin and the Russians that Ukrainians are a people uh that they exist and there th- this this is a something that has translated most people have heard versions of this in just any of the coverage you've heard of Ukraine. If you've ever heard of it referred to as the Ukraine, what that is is part of a very old um, line that kind of exists to allow Russians to deny the existence of Ukrainians as a people and make it make it seem more like it's just kind of a geographic region, which is not the case and why you, you wouldn't refer to – you wouldn't call it the Ukraine any more than you would call it the Canada. Um, it just isn't the way you – you say should say that but um yeah so i i think that's at least enough of a background to get into the real meat of what we want to talk about so and i'm just going to kind of open this up to you to chat about what you'd like to t- say and what you think needs to be gotten across to the international left because internationalism is is something we value a lot here and it has been hard to find in this conflict
5: yeah uh like Growing up in New York in the 90s, one of the core values I kind of absorbed, I guess, through osmosis is the value that every single person I met, regardless of whatever corner of the world they came from, Mm -hmm. is the exact same human being as me. Mm -hmm. Um, And it wasn't, and and that kind of realization was one of the things that, I guess, I wouldn't say pushed, but... um, conspired to to turn me into uh, a leftist a socialist marxist um and part of that especially when i was learning about what the hell all these isms were um was internationalism the idea that well our struggle isn't within the the fabricated borders of whatever um polity has has decided to impose their their authority um but Internationally, every single worker is the same as every other worker. We're all struggling with the same issues. We're all fighting the same forces. Um, And generally speaking, we have the same enemies. Uh, Now, fast forward to 2022. uh, I go online and what do I see? Well, Ukrainians are all Nazis. Or Ukraine shouldn't exist. Or how can we support either of those? It's two fascist states fighting each other. And I'm sorry, Ukraine's got a population of 44 million. You want to tell me that every single one of those 44 million are Nazis? Like people didn't even say that about Germany. They were literally the Nazi state.
4: I mean, or the United States um, for that matter. Yeah.
5: Like we had four years of Trump, an openly fascist uh, authoritarian leader. And no one seems to say, well, I guess the us should be bombed well I guess there are some
4: yeah I mean there's definitely there's that. definitely people who say that but yeah <laughs>
5: but generally speaking <laughs> that's not exactly the the view that people take right um so it's it, it's been a long process of disappointment well I say long um there's always been the the kind of well, what do these people really think about Ukraine but bereft of such a, a strong impetus to take a side i guess um it hasn't been in the forefront and now every day i see people that i would have considered comrades that i would have considered um friends and brothers just kind of turn their back on me cuz i live here right any any aggression any action that's taken will literally affect me physically sitting here in queue um So it's been it's been really, really immensely disheartening to see that every single value um, that I thought the left was supposed to value that that I thought the left was built on um, be betrayed by people with rose emojis or hammer and sickles in their uh, usernames or whatever the hell it is.
4: And we should probably talk about some of why this is and what the what the history is here. So. The most kind of direct thing that people can point to when they when they call Ukraine a fascist state or when they talk about this is the existence of the Azov Battalion. The Azov Battalion is a paramilitary organization. That means it's it's not officially a part of the governmental military structure, but it it does receive it has received arms from the government and it uh, functions as part of Ukraine's defense forces um, for the pur- for the purposes of of fighting off the Russian backed separatists. Um, and the Azov Battalion are Nazis. Uh, there's, there's, you know, the the you can. There's been a tremendous amount of reporting on that on that matter. It's a, a a big problem, and the Ukrainian government deserves a significant amount of criticism for the degree to which Azov has been allowed to continue existing. Um, but there's also a lot that gets left out when people focus on that, including the fact that. For example, the political wing of Azov, right sector, which is kind of the, the, it would be fair to call that the umbrella term for like the far right parties in the Ukra- Ukrainian government, have been pretty effectively siloed away from political power um, through very active measures to about like what is it, one percent of um, like representation. And so, yeah, it's, they
5: didn't actually pass the threshold to enter the new parliament. Yeah, like they're they're non entity politically. They're just non popular. They're. Yeah. Um, campaigns fail their mottos mm-hmm. fail their agitation fails ukrainians do not want to vote for nazis
4: yeah and it's it it is it is a an ugly situation i and i remember talking with when i was reporting on the maidan uprisings which is when uh again for people who who aren't up on recent ukrainian history they had a president who tried to do a dictatorship um and people rose up and fought him in the streets um, it was a very gnarly time. About 200 people were shot by government forces. Um, and eventually the president was forced to flee the country, which is what precipitated everything that's happening now, because that president was pretty closely tied with Putin and the people fighting him um, were not all – they were not pro-NATO rebels, but they were more – definitely more supportive of closer ties with Western Europe than they were with Russia. Um, and that, again, those are kind of the precipitating events for everything that happened that's happening now. Um, and some of the people who were fighting the president's forces were fascists. Um, and it's one of those things I remember talking with protesters at the time who were like, well, am I supposed to get in fight with them at the same time as I'm trying not to get shot by riot police? Like, what what do you expect me to do? And it is a nasty situation. And it's one of those things. Um, I don't know. Like, I, I, I don't know what to, to tell people about that because it's 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 ugly, and it's uh, uncomfortable, and it's messy. And that's also Ukrainian history. There's a lot of ugly, uncomfortable, messy things here, as there is with every country's history. It doesn't mean that people in Kiev deserve to have their ho- housing blocks pounded by Russian artillery. It doesn't mean that people in Ivdivka deserve to have their homes pounded by artillery. Um, and whatever criticisms you want to make about how the Russian government or how the Ukrainian government has handled Azov, and there are many criticisms to make, that's not really relevant to the people living in these areas, having their homes destroyed on a daily basis by mortar fire.
3: Visit rightrug.com, that's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.
5: I just want to make like a couple things really clear. The Azov Battalion is like a thousand guys. Yeah. Like, Max? And the reason, one of the reasons, at least, that they rose to such prominence in the beginning wasn't only their um, ability to, to mobilize in the early stages of the Russian war against Ukraine. Uh, it was also because they had very strong financial backing um, from the former interior minister, um, yep. Avakov. And Avakov is no longer in power. Uh, and one of the things you can see immediately was the like almost nullifying of fascist street marches and fascist demonstrations um, in Kiev, outside the president's office, that all vanished because more like in Ukraine, ideology is not very strong. And this is something um, that I've noticed a lot of people uh, from the US and Europe have trouble understanding about Ukrainian politics. People here are not really ideological. Our parties don't map. Um, aside from a couple of outliers like right sector, um, it doesn't really map to any left-right access. Um, people typically will always want the same policies. Like they always want a pension, they always want um universal healthcare to be better, they always want the roads fixed. Um, generally, policy is something most Ukrainians actually agree on. Um, as a result, most of our elections are purely personality based. Uh that's one of the reasons um Zelensky, Volodymyr Vol- Zelensky, our current president, won was because he was a well-known comedian. Yeah. Uh, and people liked his personality. And he but- put out a whole TV show as a PR stunt. Yeah. Um, before launching his campaign. And yeah. people voted for that personality that they saw on screen. Uh and so when there was far-right activity, and, and again, I want to stress that that activity, even the street activity, has almost Disappeared. It's because the far right is typically used in Ukraine as a political tool by one oligarch or one interest group against another. That's why when the money disappeared, they disappeared because the leaderships, uh, the leadership of these fascist groups, typically speaking, were not um, that ideological themselves, but they did like having USUVs and they did like buying guns and um, hiring hookers and doing drugs. Like they liked the money, and that's why they did it. And they would convince a bunch of teenagers to go out and wave a couple of torches and march and chant. But these guys were really purely in for the money. Um, and again, you can tell that because when their financial backer disappeared, they're nowhere to be found.
4: Yeah. And it's one of those, one of the things that is very frustrating to me. I can remember one of the earliest projects that I did that was like a, a – for Bellingcat as we were, there was a, a pride march in Kiev that got attacked by Nazis. This was a couple of years back, and we were kind of trying to identify the individual fascists who were like beating people in the street. And it's – spending hours poring over that footage, it, it makes it incredibly frustrating that there are people outside of the country boiling it down to, well, all of those people are fascists all of those people are part of a fascist state and it's like no some a lot of those people a quite a few ukrainians have fought nazis in the streets you know um that's a reality of the situation and it's it's um and it it's it's ugly in part because if you actually want to look at what's been happening uh with the russian backed separatists there's a lot of fucking fascists over there um, there's a lot of uh, paramilitary organizations and like far right groups that have been used by that the Russian government
5: Wagner PMC. Yeah. Yeah. Literally, um, literally named because they're fascist leader. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. Wagner, like many Nazis. It's, it, it it's, it's hard to, to understand honestly, from my perspective, Um, because not only is Russian fascism have far more influence on Russian policy than any Ukrainian fascist has ever had in Ukrainian policy. Um, it's also that the Russian project and the narrative they use. Um, there, there's this uh, joke they call, or not really joke, a slur. They call na- they call Ukrainians Nazi Banderists. Mm-hmm. Um, for those who don't know, Bandera was yeah. uh, a uh, n- Ukrainian nationalist leader, a partisan, fought against the Soviets, uh, and. He His organization was impl, uh, implicated in quite a few war crimes.
4: Yeah, significant um, number of war crimes. Too many war yeah. crimes. Yeah. Uh,
5: so clearly, Bender himself, probably not a great guy. Yeah. Uh, but to delegitimize all Ukrainian kind of independence movements that have propped up over the years, the Soviet government and now the Russian government has always, always insisted that there is no legitimate way for Ukraine to be independent. We're all Nazi Banderists, mm-hmm. no matter what. And that's why you had, um, there's a picture a couple of days ago of a solidarity march in Kiev um, with uh, some of uh, Kiev's LGBT community holding up Banderas flags. Not because they're gay Nazis, but because it's a way of um, yeah. retaking this slur back from the Russian. And it's all – part of the
4: complicating factor here is that because of how geopolitics worked out in that period of time, there are very uncomfortable but kind of inextricable ties between uh, Ukrainian – the the, the basic idea of Ukraine being a nation independent from Russia and anti-communism. And because of what was going on in anti-communism in that period of time, we're talking the 30s and 40s, it means that a decent number of those early Ukrainian nationalists were either directly implicated with the Nazis like Bandera or at least had uncomfortable ties. And that's a messy part of history that shouldn't be shied away from. But for example, the same thing is true of Finland. Like, you can say the exact same thing about fucking Finnish uh, nationalism, Finnish sovereignty, and whatnot. Um, and people don't call Finland a Nazi nation. Um, even though, yeah, the fact that they were stuck between the USSR and Nazi Germany means that there were a lot of Finns in that period of time who made some real fucked up choices. Um, like, but also. There's a lot that has to be, like, it, it, you can't adequately discuss why those choices were made if you don't talk about, for example, the Holodomor, you know, which was the starvation genocide of several million Ukrainians uh, by the Soviet government. Like, And it honestly, was, to, to yeah. go
5: back even further um, and to, I don't know, <laughs> burnish my leftist credentials a little bit, if you go back to the Civil War itself where yeah. um, a lot of this started – Most of the nationalist groups, I would say nearly all of them, there were one or two monarchist, minor monarchist groups uh, in Ukraine. But the grand majority of them were, in fact, socialism or Mm -hmm. socialist. Yeah, They had, like, the hammer and sickle and wheat on their currency and everything because, at the time, that was what won votes uh, from the peasantry. But when the Bolsheviks crushed every independent Ukrainian social movement, in exchange for uh, bureaucrats that they imported from the empire and just shoved into Ukrainian cities. Uh, Well, then you had Ukrainians that wanted to be independent and wanted to have uh, a better life than under the Tsar. Well, now suddenly they don't even have that support um, from the Bolsheviks. Uh, And obviously, as a Ukrainian, um, I can't talk about this without bringing up Nestor Makhno. Yeah, who was a uh, anarchist leader, the leader of the Ukrainian Black Army um, during the civil war, and what happened to them? Well, the Bolsheviks betrayed them, and killed all of them, and crushed the movement, uh, and then smeared them all as um, pedophile, rapist, cannibals. If I remember correctly.
4: Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of of, of <laughs> disinformation you can find about that time, just like today. You know, uh, only the names have changed.
5: Exactly. So if there is no Other outlet for Ukrainian nationalism and the group that you thought may be an ally Mm -hmm. in uh, destroying the empire in granting you self determination turns out to be a continuation of that exact empire. Well, it's pretty logical, maybe not right, but it is pretty logical for people go to 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 the uh, for people to go to the other extreme.
4: And it's one of those one of the things I think that should be noted more, as we talked about earlier, is that. One of these stories of Ukrainian politics, particularly in the last, God, close to a decade since the Maidan, is that mainstream Ukrainian political leaders and Ukrainian voters have overwhelmingly rejected that sort of nationalism this time around um, and have gone out of their way to silo it out of active political power um, in a way that one could argue is more successful than has been done in the United States. Um and yeah,
5: absolutely we didn't yeah elect trump
4: <laughs> yeah no you get you guys basically elected john stewart um <laughs>
5: <laughs> pretty yeah. much i mean that was his um yeah that was yeah. his whole thing he put on satirical political sketches mm-hmm. that was yeah. the entire show um we did basically elect john stewart and you know i have my criticisms of zelensky um as a lot of people do uh and One of the things we love saying in Ukraine whenever people are like, oh, look at all the look at all the Nazis there. We're so not we're so anti-Semitic that we elected a Jewish comedian. Yeah, that's how that's how anti-Semitic we are, that we have huge menorahs standing in the middle of Kiev during the high holidays. That's how that's how anti-Semitic we are.
4: Yeah. And and Zelensky's uh, prime minister is also a Jewish man, which makes Ukraine the second country in the world to have a Jewish president and prime minister.
5: Um yeah, like we don't care because it's not it doesn't even yeah. come up in campaigns. Like it, what even when Romney was running, you'd see democratic mm-hmm. campaigns um painting him as a scary Mormon or uh the ads implying in yeah. that's a scary Mormon. You don't even have that level of religious antipathy in Ukraine. <laughs> it
4: it's 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 just a much more complicated we're actually talking about the problems of the far right and a and fascism you know, in Ukraine. It's a much more complicated story than a lot of people on you know, social media or whatnot want to give it credit to because it's just easy to sum things up in one sentence and not have to care about a looming humanitarian catastrophe. But that is what we are looking at. If this invasion – it will be bad – if Russia uses active forces in order to take the remainder of those two provinces from the Ukrainian government, it will be a nightmare of almost unimaginable consequence if the invasion proceeds on the wider scale that is possible at this point. Um and now, it is I've
5: been a oh sorry, go on. No, 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 please. Yeah. Um I've been a doomer on this basically since I, I first heard about the buildup. Um because Putin has made it very clear over the years what he considers Ukraine to be like you mentioned he doesn't think that Ukraine should exist as like a polity um and as a result uh, I have pretty much this whole time been pretty sure that he's going to attack you um, and now we're coming to a very definite tipping point um just today Putin's made a lot of moves um like you mentioned he uh, authorized military force to be used um, in the Donbass. And actually, he's gone further. He's authorized military force to be used abroad, uh, which, I mean, obviously that means Ukraine. Where else? Mm-hmm. That's where his, like, the about, I think, 70 or 80% of the entire Russian army is currently around Ukraine or close enough that they can reinforce um, w- without a, a lot of yeah, it. or at
4: least of, of the active duty, because the Russian military there's an, a smaller yeah, yeah, yeah. B- not b- the, but actually competent, st- right? Yeah, yeah, yes,
5: yeah. But the professional, the contract soldiers, yes, yeah. Um, and especially on the northern border, uh, there are a lot of battalion tact groups that are basically sitting and waiting, I guess, for whatever the order will mm-hmm. be eventually. Um, and in Belarus. And since Putin has given this authorization to operate abroad and he stated that he recognizes these puppet authorities, as I call them, um, that he recognizes their borders as uh, the entirety of the donetsk luhansk uh, oblast. which again, only a third of those territories are under the de facto uh, control of the puppet authorities. Mm-hmm. Two thirds of both provinces are still um, under Ukrainian government control. Uh, including the the critical port city of Mariupol, and now that Putin has authorized force to be used abroad, well, it's kind of—I mean, at least it is incredibly obvious to me what the next steps are from the Russian perspective if I want to subjugate Ukraine. Yeah, um, and I think a big failing here is people in the West, especially the Western left. Um, no, very little, uh, of, for example, the Chechen Wars. Oh God. Uh, especially the second yeah. war and what happened to Grozny. Yeah. Um, after, during that war and what the Russians did to subject th- that population. Yeah. And if anyone thinks that Putin treasures Ukrainian lives any more than he did Chechen lives, then I've got a bridge of the Nipro <laughs> to sell them though. You should act now because the Valley is going <laughs> to drop real fast.
4: Yeah. And it's one of those, if you, as a good leftist, I uh, have spent a significant amount of time reading about the horrific crimes of, of imperialist nations in Africa and Southeast Asia and in, in the Americas. Um, what the Russian Federation did there is, is on that scale. It, it's, it's absolutely on that scale. It was a, it was a, a, a titanically ugly war. Um, and I mean, any,
5: modernly, we can look at what they did in Syria –
4: yeah, but, or what they are doing in Syria. Yeah, yeah. And what they
5: continue to do in Syria. Yeah. Um, but as it turns out, um, Syrians learned this lesson that I am learning now about yeah. big portions of the um, Western left a long time ago.
4: Yeah, which is that if you can find, for example, some Syrian rebels uh, who are shitty and Islamists or whatever, you can tar every single person who ever stood up against Bashar al-Assad as a, as a terrorist. Um, which is really easy, especially if you're getting paid Kremlin money to advance that line and you your name is Ben Norton.
3: Right rug flooring.
4: This brings us to the place where there really aren't clear answers. Which is like, what can be done? And it is one of those things where it's like, well, uh, that's not an easy question because you do have to when you start grappling with like, all right, well, like, should what should NATO do? What should other European non-NATO nations do? Like, what what, what is actually uh, capable? Of like potentially altering or disrupting the, the courses of action here. Well, we're talking about the Russian state, which has a lot of nukes. Um, yeah. We're talking about a situation that could spiral out of control in a way that very few situations globally are capable of potentially spiraling out of control. And so it is a, a not a situation where anyone who tells you this is clearly the thing to do that will work is, I think, trying to is probably full of shit and a little unhinged, um, because this is a real fucking ugly one. Um, but some of what has been done, um, we just got the news today that I think we both found surprising, but is very positive that the Germans have canceled uh, construction of the Nord Stream Two pipeline, which is a, a, a gas pipeline from Russia into the EU. Um, that. A lot of folks were saying Germany was not going to take any sort of stances, solid stances on Ukraine's behalf because of that pipeline, because of how Germany, along with a lot of Western Europe, is tremendously reliant upon Russian gas exports um, for just like keeping themselves heated in the winter. Um, So that's a positive move. I I tend to be critical of the ability of sanctions to do much. um, And if we're looking historically at sanctions – particularly how they're most often implied, they have a tendency to just harm regular people more than they have to do. Like we can look at the sanctions in Iraq, right? Which which were part of why something like a million people starved. Um, we are talking about different kinds of sanctions in general. And we're talking about the sanctions being imposed by NATO countries against the Russian state right now. They're largely sanctions against members of the Duma. Um, the, there's, there's a lot it, it's not the same as looking at like what was being done to Saddam's Iraq. That said I, I'm still very hesitant to say I think that sanctions are going to disrupt Putin's course of action. I'm curious what you think can and should be done here, you know like what is do, do you have any kind of clear idea in your own head about what might have a disruptive effect on on what Putin is doing
5: Learn to teleport and shoot Putin in the head with a nine mm I, I mean, mean, that would be, that'd I'm be joking.
4: great. There's, there's a, had we that teleportation capacity, there would be a list, uh, you know? <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately I never
5: put my skill points into that. Yeah. Um, um, but realistically speaking, the Russian state is authoritarian. It doesn't really care what its own citizens think. It definitely yep. doesn't care what other people think. However, um, Russia has been, at least in um, the modern realm relatively image conscious um which is why i think one thing that could work for example or not could work but would perhaps force the russian state to consider its actions a little bit more carefully and i want to be very clear when i talk about the russian state i'm talking about putin himself
4: yeah the Um, government
5: he has no there's no like other decision makers in Russia. And that was actually perfectly encapsulated um, during his speech the other day where he just outright um, like eviscerated the head of his foreign intelligence service on live TV for the whole world to see just utterly humiliated the guy for no real reason, (laughs) just because he can. And you could see that, and we're talking about Russia's top spy, I mean, beyond Putin himself, Stammering like a frightened school child when Putin addressed him just a, with just a hint of sharpness. Yeah. Um, so when I say the Russian state, I am referring literally to the body and person of, of, of Vladimir Putin. Um, and like, honestly, yeah, I would love to see people picket Russian embassies and um, make demonstrations and marches and so on. Um, do I think that will have a practical, real effect? to be honest, no, same with the sanctions. Um, I'm sure Putin's, uh, pet oligarchs and members of his party and the, uh, the people that in theory keep him in power, um, the oligarchs, the, the parliamentarians, the mafia lords and so on. I'm sure they're going to be pretty miffed if their yachts and their, uh, multi million dollar properties in Miami and New York and London and the villas and the French Riviera, when, when all that gets taken, I'm sure they'll, they'll be pretty annoyed. Um, but I don't think Putin cares. I think that he has a really irrational um, desire to subjugate Kiev specifically. Um, he sees Kiev as um, what we call in Russian the, the mother of all Russian cities. Yeah. It's the, um, the I mean, birthplace the, the- of the Kievian ruse. Yeah, the
4: Um, the word Russian comes from Kievan Rus. You know,
5: exactly, exactly. And I just uh, don't think that Putin is going to turn away from that goal. No, um, because a couple of his buddies are complaining that their mega yachts got taken in by the British authorities or whatever. No. Um, Nor do I think they're going to care that you know there are a couple of marchers outside of embassies in New York or something. Um, But that may help spur the world as a whole, the international community, into Taking a harder line stance against Putin. Because time and time and again, um, like the guy's a gangster. He's he's like a security service thug. If you've ever like interacted with like a petty like sergeant, police mm-hmm. sergeant or something that has just a bit of authority and pretty much total impunity, that that's Putin to a T. Um, the dude thinks he's overeducated, uh, and the cleverest man in the world. Yeah, think, um, but in think, reality, the way he yeah. talks and the way he acts, he's just a bully. He's
4: he's he's got the same basic personality as like Villanueva, you know, the 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 fucking head of the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. He's like not like a beat cop, but like one of the cops who rises to run a union or run a city police department. Yeah, and
5: exactly, exactly. Yeah,
4: he's good at consolidating power. He's good at at exercising or organizing others to exercise violence on his behalf. But yeah, at the end of the day he is primarily a bully and it's one of those um I don't know, like when it comes to arms shipments, that is a, a, a historically again, if you look at the history of particular like let's just say specifically NATO shipping arms places most of the time, that does not improve the situation for people in that country. That that has been a, a historical reality of arms shipments, not just with NATO. As a general rule everywhere, when you ship more guns into an area, that, that rarely improves quality of life. Um, but we are not talking about a country that has had I- any kind of – centralized political legitimacy or whatnot collapse. We're not talking about a country that is in the middle of tearing itself apart between 30 or 40 different sides. Um, It's not the same situation as, well, let's ship a bunch of guns to Libya, you know? Um, It it just isn't. There are different histories, different uh, political realities on the ground. I don't know that I actually think any amount of arms shipments would dissuade Putin from advancing either, Um, but I – I don't know what else to do. I I certainly am not against the idea of like, okay, guys, have some AGTMs, you know, have some wire-guided missiles, have some javelins. um, Because, like, what else are you going to do? I mean, we're not going to, and I'm I'm certainly not saying we should, send U.S. troops in. um, Because, again, we have to consider the nuclear situation, too. Um, What do you think is... Where are your thoughts there? Um, Because this is something that I'm very... I'm very mixed on, although, again, I'm, I'm broadly fine with, yeah, I mean, at least give people the ability to fight back.
5: Yeah, it's a difficult one, especially, like you noted, the military-industrial complex has very rarely improved yep. any situation in the world, anywhere. Yep. This might be one of the few exceptions, um, because the fact is that Ukraine doesn't really have the tools to defend, them, uh, to defend ourselves. We have. Um, or at least our government claims that we have the strongest army in Europe, which to be honest, with all the the defense cuts that European countries yeah. have made over the years, that may be true, um, at s- least on a ground sense.
4: But certainly what, the most have, combat experienced army in Europe. Yeah, absolutely.
5: Yeah. Um, but what we lack entirely is air power and air defense. Yep. Um, and what Russia has in spades is air mm-hmm. power and air defense. And as we saw um, when the U.S. Uh, invaded Iraq, well, you can destroy a conventional army in a couple of days by just bombing the shit out of it. Yep. Uh, and the Russians have quite a few missiles um, aimed straight at Kiev uh, and quite a few planes waiting on standby, I presume, to bomb the shit out of Kiev. Uh, and it would be nice to have some way to to defend ourselves against that. Um, but again, there's, there's not much that can be sent. Yeah, of course, stingers and javelins and so on. Um, that'll all help raise the costs of the occupation that follows the initial bombardment. Um, But but if Putin goes for the strategy that Assad has used in Syria, which is bomb the living shit out of every civilian um, residential area in the city until the people just submit or are all dead, um, well, there's not really too much we can do about that.
4: And that is like, there is a lot that individual that that trained and motivated soldiers with small arms and munitions like javelins can do even to resist a country with with overwhelming air power the corollary to that is that in doing that a lot of stuff everyone around them dies the city is turned into a graveyard um i've i've seen that with my own eyes uh and that's that's, I mean, got to be the thing, if you're looking at this with any kind of reasonable eyes and not just like trying to find a, a political angle to support, that has to be your main concern, is that the potential here is for a tremendous loss of life and also for the creation of millions of refugees. Um, and this is something in another th- a, a, a audio clip that you published a bit earlier on Twitter, you say, which is that like, if this goes as badly as it can no matter what your politics are this will become your problem
5: 100 percent. yeah i stand behind that absolutely because there are a lot of ukrainians and while most of us have no desire to live under the russian yoke the majority of us are not trained fighters we're just people mm-hmm. just regular people and i know um, especially in the u.s um, with our like out of control gun culture, uh, oh boy! Love imagining like they're the the singular guy, you know, they're they're the macho man uh, with with all the guns. They yeah. can take down the government all by themselves. I'm sorry, it's a fantasy. It's a fiction. Um, that is not how things work. Uh, and quite frankly, most people are not psychologically suited no. to combat. That's why armies take so long to break soldiers down to teach them to murder people. Because that is not something humans do naturally. And the majority of people subjected to that kind of violence will run. And again, there are 44 million of us. And they will run and run and run pretty much everyone in the world. You saw this with Syria. saw this with Libya. Um, You've seen this pretty much with every single place that has experienced massive violence in the modern world. Um, That's the reaction. Yeah, And and yes, when we run, we bring... All of our biases and problems and cultural predilections
3: to you,
4: Mm -hmm. and it's yeah. I mean that's that's really the note to end on. And it it, it is you get a lot of folks you know who who rightly you know focus on and and think a lot about revolutionary struggles in places like Vietnam and um, and in Afghanistan, and will point out that like, well, you don't need to have. All, uh, as advanced a military as your opponent to win, and again, just the, the corollary what to that. All winning? yeah, it, the corollary to that is that like yeah, but millions of people die. <laughs> millions of people died in Afghanistan. Millions of people died in Vietnam. Um, that's that that is the reality. Yeah, you can resist an imperial power with minimal technology, but you're not going to leave that fight with a family alive. Still, you know, like that's that's how it goes. Um, so let's all say a little prayer for, I don't know, peace. <laughs> uh, I hope the, the, the worst doesn't happen. Um, what, you know, has there been kind of mobilization that you've seen within the, the, the activist, the anarchist community in, in Kiev, um, to, you know, any kind of mutual aid stuff like, or is it just one of those situations where, it hasn't started happening yet, and nobody really knows what would even be useful to do if it does.
5: I'll say this: um, it may come as a little bit of a shock, hmm. but anarchists are not typically the best organized. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. um, specifically, like a lot of my uh, the friends who are active in the anarchist um, movement in Ukraine have simply joined the territorial defense battalions Mm -hmm. um, or the regular army and will simply fight as soldiers. Um, There has been a very strong, I don't know if you call denial, um, uh, a colleague of mine used the term doomed optimism. And I really like the sound of that. So let's go with that. Yeah. There's been this really strong doomed optimism amongst Ukrainians that the worst will not happen. And there's no real reason to prepare for anything because well things are going to be fine um and that's what our government tells us as well things are going to be fine they don't see any massive acra- uh, attack groups or i mean i feel like that's contradicted by the the open source intelligence that i've been looking at yeah but i i am just one guy i obviously don't have the intelligence apparatus of a nation state um so i mean maybe they're right um but generally speaking people have just in joining the army, going to um, tactical trainings um, but this is all very basic stuff like going to the woods, learn how to set up camp and you know clean a rifle kind of kind of things. Um, nothing like combat training because where would you get that except by joining the army and going to the front?
4: yeah, it's the kind of training that might keep in the event of a full conflict, one out of ten of those people alive long enough to learn how to fight yeah
5: and and that might be worth it.
4: That yeah I mean really. yeah if you're talking uh, about like yes, not not to say people shouldn't be doing that because people should do yeah, absolutely whatever they can um how are you kind of to close out like as this like doom scrolling is a thing we all talk about, and there's there's plenty I mean just sitting here in Portland, we just had a, a mass shooting on a protest this weekend, and so there's a lot of doom scrolling going on in my community, but we're not staring down the barrel of one hundred and ninety thousand soldiers, you know, potentially uh uh hitting us from the air and ground simultaneously. How do you how are you like focusing on the stuff that you can do anything about and the stuff that you can productively handle without losing yourself in that?
5: Copious amounts of cannabis. (laughs)
4: That's good. I'm glad you guys have decent pot access.
3: Yeah. Yeah,
5: I actually don't know what I'll do if um if my current supplies cut out (laughs) <laughs> to be quite honest
3: mm-hmm.
5: um but i mean it's been definitely a, a struggle um in the past couple of days especially my mental health has not been uh especially great um but again i'm one dude like i'm not in very good shape i have poor vision one of my eyes don't work i'm diabetic mm-hmm. like I'm not going to go out and, and grab a rifle and start killing every Ruski I see, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I've got a job to do. i.e., uh, as an English language journalist in Ukraine, um, I have...
4: This is your busy season.
5: Yeah, it's my busy season. Like, one of my jobs is to counter Russian disinformation and to, like, tell people the truth of what is going on here. Um, and that role will only get more important uh, if the, the conflict expands, um, from, from the, the scope that it is now. Uh, so how am I doing? Well, I'm still alive. Mm-hmm. Um, haven't off myself yet <laughs> and, uh, uh, I'm still, I'm still working. So I think as, as good as I can be under the circumstances.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I hope your weed supply stays stable um, at the very fucking Frosting least. Crossing my fingers. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Romeo. Um, do you have anything you want to plug kind of as we as we go out here?
5: Um, just if you uh, really want to know about what's going down in Ukraine, I am co-host of a podcast called Ukraine Without Hype. You can find it on any podcast platform. Um, and if you really want to get a look at what's going on in English um, with only a tinge of leftist bias, (laughs) Um, then tune in. uh, You can follow us on Twitter, hype Ukraine. um, And again, on any podcast platform uh, that you, you so desire.
4: Awesome. Well, check out Romeo there, check out his podcast and, uh, you know, just try to keep your eyes on the situation and don't let yourself be a overwhelmed by what some random person on Twitter tries to sum it up as. you know, People are more complicated than that.
1: It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources.
3: Right Rug Flooring. it's Zumo play.